Axis Mundi. Axis Mundi. Welcome to Straight White American Jesus. My name is Brad Onishi, faculty at the University of San Francisco. Today, I have part two of the interview with Kelly Baker on the Clans America. Last week, I began the episode by pointing us to Charlie Kirk and TPUSA and Nick Fuentes. And today, I want to contextualize this part of the interview uh, by talking about what uh, Donald Trump is foreshadowing as his plan for immigration if he is back in the White House this week. We also have a few minutes of bonus content coming your way for subscribers. Going to be talking about two things that happened in Congress over the last two weeks. One is uh, the moving of the National Prayer Breakfast, or at least a prayer breakfast adjacent event to the Capitol. And a good piece by our friends Jared Huffman, Representative Jared Huffman in Congress, and Andrew Seidel at Americans United, who outlined why it's so problematic. So I'll talk about that. Also going to talk about the fact that Jack Hibbs, a vehemently anti-LGBTQ pastor uh, who believes in conversion therapy, gave the opening prayer as the guest chaplain in Congress uh, about 10 days ago. So that's coming for you subscribers. If you've not subscribed yet, obviously go ahead and do that now so you don't miss any of the bonus content. But let's get into Kelly Baker and a piece this week that came out that I think should be a warning to us all. A few days ago, there was a piece that came out by Ronald Brownstein at The Atlantic, a piece called Trump's Knock at the Door, and I had tons of folks sending it to me. I had been had it flagged myself, and it was a very, I think, frightening look into what the Trump campaign is portending for immigration if he wins the White House again. Here's how Brownstein opens at the fourth paragraph of the piece. Trump has repeatedly promised that if re-elected, he will pursue the largest domestic deportation operation in history, as he put it last month on social media. Inherently, such an effort would be politically explosive. That's because any mass deportation program would naturally focus on the largely minority areas of big democratic-leaning cities, where many undocumented immigrants have settled, such as L.A., Houston, Chicago, New York, and Phoenix. What this means is that the communities that are heavily Hispanic or black, those marginalized communities are going to be living in absolute fear of a knock on the door, whether or not they are themselves undocumented. That was David Leopold, a former president of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. Brownstein goes on to note that uh, Stephen Miller, yes, that's Stephen Miller, has outlined how this deportation program would take place. Miller talks about a private red state army under the president's command. He says that Trump would requisition National Guard troops from sympathetic Republican-controlled states and then deploy them into Democratic-run states whose governors refuse to cooperate with their deportation drive. Let me just stop for a minute and break that down. You're going to have a, a private army under the president requisitioned from National Guard troops from, say, South Dakota or Texas, 
And uh, you might send some of those National Guard troops into places like Chicago or LA. The article then outlines some of the more me the mechanics of, of uh, the deportation process. So not only do you have National Guard troops who are knocking on doors, terrifying communities of color, terrifying marginalized groups, but you have Miller who is talking about the ways that they would construct camps that would house uh, a massive amount of people. In those camps, they would be working to deport folks every day uh, on a kind of set schedule. He, I mean, Miller goes in, in detail in this piece about how Monday and Friday, there's flights back to different African countries. And Thursday and Sunday, there's flights back to different Asian countries. He talks about, in order to do this, getting red state governors to, to deputize National Guard as immigration officers. Uh, he talks about how the Alabama National Guard is going to arrest illegal aliens, quote unquote, in Alabama and the Virginia National Guard in Virginia. And if Maryland won't cooperate, then they'll just send in the troops from Virginia to go to their neighbor and do the arrests there. Miller talks about targeting 10 million people in this, this whole program. And there's voices in the article that say it's, this would be nearly impossible and it would require so many new immigration officers and personnel and so on and so forth. But the thing that is, I think, chilling about Miller's comments is that he talks about how over the course of the first Trump presidency, they learned. They learned how to govern. They learned how to be efficient. They learned how to get people out of the way that didn't agree with him and so on. And that if, if and when they get back in the White House, they'll be ready to do this. And now I don't know if they'll be ready. Uh, Trump is full of errors. There was infrastructure week his entire term. But I bring this up today because once again, I want to argue that we are living in the clans America, just as Kelly Baker talks about in the interview and, and you'll hear about in this segment. We're living in an era where the man who is crushing his opponents in the GOP primary is saying that illegals, quote unquote, immigrants, poisoning the blood of the nation, which is a paraphrase of Mein Kampf. We're living in an era where Stephen Miller is talking about sending away 10 million people. An era where if you are brown, black, Asian, you're going to have to worry about a knock on the door. Or if you wear a headscarf, you might need to worry about violence. We, we're living in an era where if you are different, if you're not a white Christian, then you'll probably need to live in fear. Even if you, you can say, well, even if you are a Christian, but you're not white. Trump's knock at the door is exactly what the Klan wanted. A president who would round up anyone who doesn't look like what they think of as a real American, put them in a camp, and then send them away. To deputize the National Guard to be used internally as a president's army. Doesn't that sound like a mob? Doesn't that sound like, I don't know, what the Klan might have done in a sundown town in the Midwest or the South? It may be jarring to think of living in the Klan's America, but I don't really know how else to put it when I read Brownstein's article about the knock on the door and what Stephen Miller wants to do. Stephen Miller says that this will be a joyful occasion. 
And it just strikes me of how sick that is to think that uh, rounding up folks, uh, terrorizing them in the night, taking children with their families and putting them in a camp is somehow joyous, somehow wondrous. It's scary to think of a human being reveling in that. But once again, I'll just put it out there. As Kelly Baker says, we're living in the clans, America. Today, there's bonus content coming at you if you're a subscriber. So stay put. Going to be talking about the National Prayer Breakfast and kind of change in venue and change in scope, and it somehow gets even worse. So National Prayer Breakfast, our friend Jared Huffman was there to protest. It's a whole thing to kind of uh, hear about, even if you think you know about the National Prayer Breakfast. And so if you're a subscriber, hang out after the interview with Kelly Baker. If you're not a subscriber, today is the day to do that. Every Monday we have, or at least most Mondays, not every Monday, but most Mondays we have bonus content. And uh, once a month we have a premium episode. You have access to the 500 episode archive and ad-free listening. So sign up today and uh, get access to all those things. Otherwise, thanks for being here, friends. Here is my interview, the second part with Kelly Baker. so glad you mentioned preachers and churches. Here's a scene that I always imagine happening after reading your book is that you go to church in the morning in Indiana or in Georgia. Could it could be New York uh, state, mm-hmm. uh, New York state, could be Oregon, wherever. And that Sunday is sponsored by this right. group of patriotic boys who love America and they got American flags everywhere. They love Jesus. There maybe they have a choir. And they actually paid for a big potluck after church for everyone right. to come to. And they just happened to be called the Ku Klux Klan. And, you know, their pitch is, hey, if you're a man and you love this country and you want it to stay God's country, then get up here and join us because that's what we're doing. I mean, is that, is that a fair kind of recreation of their pitch on a Sunday morning to the everyday white man? No, it's not far off. They're like, they're like, men, come join us. We're a fraternal order. We love America. We love Jesus. We want you to continue to go to church. Um, we uh, support the white race, which would be the other piece of this. Like, we're going to support people that look like us and look like you. And we want you to be a part of that as well. So that it's not far off from this. We're going to have picnics. We're going to have parades. We even have this auxiliary where women can join and support us too, you know, that we have stuff for the kids even. I mean, it didn't last long because it was not very well organized or put together or fun. But, you know, like they attempted to do that too um, in some kind of way. So, yeah, I mean, it's close to what they had and part of their attempt, right, to sort of mobilize and organize and recruit um and so yeah just your friendly neighborhood clansmen saying things that people would find innocuous and not really surprising so i think people imagine that their pitch was something like wild right or it was something like outside of what you would imagine would be normal in some kind of way and it wasn't really, yeah. right? It was something that would be sort of appealing. And I think that that's part of what I tried to show with the book is that most of this stuff is really like 
mundane mm. and everyday. And really, people found themselves in this before they would kind of realize it in some instances. Not to give them a pass at all is what I'm, I'm not trying to say that. But that they were like, yeah, I do love America and Jesus. Sure, you know? Like like the pitch wasn't, hey, did you wake up today and want to kill 10 Catholics? Because I bet you right. did. Like, right, you know, the that pitch, was not the pitch, yeah. The pitch was, and, and I guess this is where I want to go next, is like, I think people people always ask me, what's Christian about Christian nationalism? And I think if we if we go to the Klan... I think people just think that the the driving force, the out and out, like leading the cart was racism. And it, don't get right. me wrong. Like, don't, don't, this is not me saying it wasn't. This is not me exonerating the, like, I'm not trying right. to reduce or minimize any of the white supremacy, any of the anti-Semitism, any of the anti-Catholicism. But I, what I am trying to say is that according to you and your work, the pitch is not, hey, did you wake up today? Just want to be like malevolently violent against black folks, Jews right. and Catholics, then come join us. The, the pitch right. was, do you love God in America? Come on down. Right. And I think that a lot of their symbols and their garb and their myths and rituals were infused and centered around Christianity. Right. Is, I mean, is that true? And, and yeah, and it is. It is. I mean, and so, so much of it was patriotism and religion baked into the symbols and the garb. So, and then the white supremacy piece is also a part of that, right? So one of the things that I did in the book is I was really looking at it from the Klan's perspective, and which is a choice. And so I will say that that's a choice and people have come at me for that choice. And that's like legitimate. That's fair. I take that criticism. Um, but one of the things that they did is they spent a lot of time thinking about the robe as like a theological object, right? And as a patriotic object. So that they're like, when we put on the robes, what we're doing is we're putting on the example of Jesus because we're we're becoming members of a body of Christ who are no longer individuals. We're subsuming ourselves. We are no longer being seen as individuals because we're putting this mask on, right? And they spent a lot of time and effort on this to think about the theology behind this. On the flip side of this, this is clearly an object of terror. Like they're walking around terrorizing people in these robes and it gives them cover. It hides their identities, these other sorts of things. So they function in both ways. They don't function just in one way, right? White supremacist object, also theological object. They can be both. Um, when we're talking about the fiery cross, they're doing the same thing. They're like, this shows us the light of Jesus. When we set it on fire, that's what we're seeing, right? We're bringing Jesus' example to the world. When they set it on fire in someone's yard, this is not showing someone the light of Jesus. This is clearly to terrorize them and to show them that the clan was there, that they're being threatened. So again, it's like terrorist, white supremacist object theological object at the same time. And so I had to think a lot about that, right? Like they're saying one thing and they're doing another with it at the same time because they're so-called enemies, right? They're not bringing Jesus's love to them with the robe or the cross. Like that's not what's happening here at all. Um, but but you're probably blowing some people's minds right now because I think it, because because the Klan is such a, an agent of terror, 
right and symbolizes terror in this country especially for for black people and for uh, for others that they targeted the idea that putting on that robe would be a, a theological or religious act of saying right. hey i'm no longer an individual i'm part of the uh, i'm part of the body of christ and i'm i'm not jerry i'm uh, your neighborhood dentist with his own little family i am this uh, anonymized part of a bigger body a mystical body of jesus People are like, are you serious? No, you, know. put that, you put on that mask so no one knew who you were, so you could go out and terrorize people. Right. That's that's what you were doing. You, and and I guess what I, I just can't hold off any longer, like in terms of the, the present day, the question that people ask me all the time is like, how can you be a Christian and think that your actions, uh, when it comes to like talking about migrants dying in a river at the border, are the love of Christ? That's t- That's inhumane that's terrorizing but the mindset is exactly what you're describing of oh right. no this is what this is me bringing the love of god to my country by shutting down its border and having people die in a river just as the clan imagined yep we're bringing christ to the world by putting on these robes and lighting these crosses in people's lawns and scaring them into submission and doing what they're supposed to in terms of our social order it's it seems to me to be the same thing Yes. Yeah. And one of the things I always emphasize to people, because I always get asked this question to you, where they're like, Jesus is about love. Like, how can you talk about the clan? I always have. And it's always like this really sweet little old lady that asked me this question. Like, it never fails. But, and then I feel really terrible that I have to, like, answer this question and, like, respond where I feel like I'm the awful person that has to then be like, well, <laughs> like, and so I always emphasize that Christian love can be exclusionary, that it doesn't have to be like universal. It doesn't have to be like we imagine it to be or we hope it would be, which is be they would be all encompassing and that it would cover everyone. And that for these groups, that it's always very exclusionary in who it covers, that it can be very selective and that it can be used super selectively so that, yeah, it cannot include immigrants at the border. Yes, it cannot include Catholics, right? Um, or African-Americans. It cannot include Jewish people. It can just very much have borders set up and say, no, what we're talking about is certain people in our country who matter and other people who don't. And Christian love is very much mobilized for the Klan in a defense of a certain type of nation. And for them, it's a white Protestant nation only. And if that means that other people get left behind, right, or hurt, then they're okay with that. And it doesn't, and it's not logically inconsistent for them. And I think that's hard for folks to wrap their heads around sometimes that it can be both and that they don't have a problem with it. Like it, it doesn't register that this could be problematic or that this could not be Christian love somehow. But yeah, it it's a tough one, I think, for folks to like, really like come to grips with but I have this happen a lot with my work too where people are like how dare you and I'm like I know but I dare sorry you know well and I think the temptation is to say well they obviously weren't real Christians and I Mm -hmm. think you know as scholars of religion it's always like well they called themselves Christians they did this in the name of in Christ and so whether or not I think they are I don't know what you want me to say good Christians or something I don't know I'm not gonna I don't know I'm not gonna make that judgment but I will say they seem pretty Christian to me. 
Uh, and so we have to take them seriously with that. So here are the things that I, I hope folks are taking away that this was a mainstream organization reacting to fears of replacement by new immigrants and new demographics. They were Christian through and through. Christian was not an add-on. Christian was not a veneer. Christian was not a right. uh, a surface level uh, thing that they kind of gave lip service to. Being Christian and having a Christian nation was at the heart of the mission. And uh, the resonances with our, our public square today are just resounding. I want to ask a question I have not asked you on, on previous uh, times you've been here or just in our our individual conversations, and that is the clan's demise is is sort of up around the Great Depression, at least this clan. Is there anything we can learn from their demise about how we might fight white supremacy and white supremacist hmm. organizations in our current moment? Or was it just they shot themselves in the foot, financial scandals, lying sex scandal from the leader so they went away i mean is there anything we yeah. can learn or is it like actually no they just sort of imploded well you know it's hard because they had particular scandals that kind of did them in that went against their principles so like you said there was a big sex scandal that involved one of their leaders that went against their principle of virtuous white womanhood it looked like they were hypocritical that got a lot of attention. Unfortunately, under our current situation, that seems to not be a thing that matters. So I don't think that one will work for us. Okay, you know, strike, yeah, strike, strike on strike that one. one. Okay. There was an attempt to go after them on like taxes mm. that also worked. I don't that's, know that that's, yeah. I mean, going to work for us Jury. in this situation. <laughs> we yeah. could. It could, maybe, yeah, you know, yeah. we'll see. So I think they just kind of imploded. What concerns me about their demise, uh, it makes me nervous, is that their ideas lived on even though they didn't. Yeah. And I think that's the piece that sometimes people don't get with the Klanists. They're like, oh, they ended. It's a miracle. Like, they were done. Like, they ended in the 20s and, like, we moved on as a culture. I don't know how many books I read that did this. They're like triumphant. They're like, they ended. We succeeded as a culture. We got better. And I hate to be this person, but I'm like, did we? Did we get better? Yeah. Or did we not need them anymore because their ideas became entrenched and showed up in different places? Like, did they actually win because we didn't need them anymore? And the ideas that they had about like white supremacy and Christian nationalism just got embedded in other different movements and carried on in more subtle ways that are harder to fight. I don't know. I made this comment like a few years ago at a panel where I was like, I think we're living in the Klan's America. I think they kind of won and the audience sort of revolted at me. This was before the Trump years, which is, I think, why they revolted. Yeah. I think people would less revolt now if I said that. Well, maybe well, not. I don't know. I mean, we, we literally are in a place where the leader of TPUSA, Charlie Kirk, said on Martin Luther King Jr. Day or, or in that week that Martin Luther King Jr. was a bad guy and he hurt black Americans by uh, all of his work. And he really set our country backwards for several decades. So, like, when you say we're living in the Klan's America, it's, it, you know, when I think about, you know, what's happening in Florida and 
oh the, yeah the, the you know the black studies ap or black history ap class or everything with the 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 efforts to get rid of dei or i mean we could we can talk for the next three hours about the ways yep. that that's all present but for me when you say we're living in clans america my 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 reaction is never like, oh, I'll have to think about that. I'm going to get a latte and think about that. My reaction is just like vigorous head nod. Like, yep. yeah, yeah. Kelly, Dr. Yeah. Kelly Baker, right again. Because yeah. that that's so. Um, but I don't anyway. want to be right. Like, I mean, this is one of those yeah. instances where with the damn book, can I say damn? But like, you know, with the damn book, I'm like, I don't want it to be relevant. Like, there's a part of me that has this moment where I want the book to not be relevant. Like I have this like thing where people will text me and they're like, so I suggested your book to someone again because things happened and I feel like they should read it. And I'm like, that's not a win. Like, I feel like if the book is doing good, something has gone wrong in our yeah. culture again. Like it's that weird thing where the relevancy of that book and talking about like the 1920s clan and that sort of thing for our current moment um, always signals that something has gone terribly wrong. So I don't like being right about this kind of stuff. It never makes me feel good. Um, well, it's the same thing with this show. I just, uh, someday I'll go fulfill my dreams of, I don't know, being a horticulturist or something. But for now, here we are. Uh, well, that's, about, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, well, I, I'm the kidding, joke but... of my joke my partner makes is he's like, one day, maybe you'll work on something that's like puppies and rainbows, yeah. you know, like maybe someday that would happen. Well, we we can dream, but yeah. All right. Well, I have I have kept you long enough. Uh, I want to just very grateful to have you come back a third time and discuss things you have discussed many times. We had you on way back at the very beginning of this show. We had you on right after, uh, I believe, the insurrection. Yes. Where we, where we talked about uh, all of these issues in light of that event, and here we are talking about them again. So you are always writing. You seemingly always have a new book coming and a new project. So can you tell folks where they can find you and, and keep up with all of, your, uh, all of your amazing things? Sure. I am still on... I really don't want to call it X, but I guess I will at Kelly underscore J underscore Baker, um, though I'm on there less. Um, I'm also on Blue Star, and I think there it's just at Kelly J Baker because they didn't let me keep my underscores, which is really sad. Um, I also have a website, which is just my name where you can find what I'm doing. Thanks for listening to my interview with Dr. Kelly Baker, y'all is eye-opening, as always, with conversations with her, and I just appreciate her work so much. going to transition now into some thoughts on some recent events over in our nation's capital and talk about uh, the National Prayer Breakfast and some other things. Jared Huffman and Andrew Seidel this week, or ex excuse me, last week, wrote about how the National Prayer Breakfast has uh, changed uh, in the last couple of years. Now, if you're not familiar, I think most of you are, but the National Prayer Breakfast started in uh, the 1950s. It was really in the heyday of the kind of Eisenhower, God and country era of the of the nation. This is post-World War II. This is when we got in God We Trust on the money and under God in the Pledge of, Pledge of Allegiance. And this is the era of fighting communists and the Cold War and 
Jesus and America go together against the godlessness and the, the communism of, of the Soviet Union and so on and so forth. Now, what's happened in the last couple of years is that we now have not one, but two uh, national prayer breakfasts or events or whatever you want to call them. So let me talk about what has become the alternative to the national prayer breakfast. This is the group that thinks that uh, the national prayer breakfast is too compromising or too moderate. So here's Matthew Taylor, my colleague, writing at the Bulwark last week. And he says this, this event has been billed as a more radical alternative to the newly bipartisan and toned down National Prayer Breakfast. It was designed for Republican politicians, including Speaker of the House Mike Johnson, to meet and pray with right-wing charismatic Pentecostal and evangelical Christian leaders. Uh, where do they meet, you ask? They met at the Museum of the Bible, which, if you know anything about that, is a Christian nationalist outpost and largely a work of propaganda. So that's one. And this is a really scary kind of event. And if you want more details on this and you want to understand why it represents a kind of radicalization of things, see Matt's work at The Bulwark, because uh, he wrote about it last week and he talks about it in just such uh, incredible terms. But I want to talk about the actual prayer breakfast too, what these folks would consider to be too mainstream and too compromising. The National Prayer Breakfast now uh, has been kind of taken over by Congress. Uh, what Andrew Seidel and uh, Representative Jared Huffman write at the Daily Beast is this. In a misguided damage control effort, Congress partially took over the event in 2023 and 2024. But they've created a host of new problems by holding an exclusionary Christian ceremony in the Capitol. So what's happened is the National Prayer Breakfast, the one that's been happening since 1953, is now taking place in the Capitol building. Thanks for listening to this free preview of our Swag episode. In order to get access to the full episode and so much more, become a Straight White American Jesus premium subscriber by clicking the link in the show notes. It'll take you like two clicks, I promise. In addition to getting access to this episode, you'll have access to the entire Swag archive, over 550 episodes. You'll also get an extra episode every month, bonus content every week, Discord access, and so much more. All that for less than six bucks a month, and it helps us keep our flag up and continue to safeguard democracy from religious nationalism, extremism, and rising authoritarianism. Check it out. It's not hard, I promise. Mm -hmm.